Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and, and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Co-design goes beyond traditional methods of consultation and instead forms authentic partnerships with stakeholders, including lived experience. This approach utilises knowledge and experience to develop, design and deliver a more successful program, product or service. This week's guest, Catherine Ellis, is CEO of Youth Affairs Council Victoria, the peak body and leading advocate for young people and the youth sector in Victoria. Catherine's previous roles include Director of Youth Affairs at the Commonwealth of Nations, working on youth policy and programs across 53 countries, and CEO of youth development organisation, The Reach Foundation. Earlier, she spent over a decade in the private sector, working both in Australia and internationally in a variety of analysis, strategy and corporate social responsibility roles. Catherine believes that it's vitally important to recognise young people as experts in their own lives and make sure that their unique needs and perspectives are at the heart of the policies, decisions and programs that affect them. Stay tuned as Catherine joins me to discuss the vital elements of co-design and how working with young people can vastly improve the way we approach and improve mental health care for future generations. Catherine Ellis, thanks so much for joining us and sharing your story with our listeners. We appreciate you taking the time to join me on the on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Catherine, do you just want to give our listeners a bit of a background about you professionally, what you've been up to over uh, your professional career? Because I'm very interested to know how you ended up where you are right now. Sure. So I actually started in the private sector, working for a big global multinational. I had no intention of working in the social sector with young people, anything. I, I with My main priority was getting a job where I could travel a lot. And uh, I succeeded in doing that and I worked in the private sector for 12 years. But probably the most important thing of that 12 years was that I learnt how organisations are run when they're run really effectively. And I, I got to a point where I needed a job that had more meaning to it. And I was looking around and I met someone who said to me, oh, look, there's a job going at the REACH Foundation and I think you'd be perfect for it. And REACH mm. was an organisation that had been set up by Jim Steins, the yeah. AFL champion. Yep. And they had sort of their first decent piece of funding, which meant that they could hire a CEO. And so I went and met Jim and the board and I actually had no idea who he was, which was probably a really good thing because a lot of people were very intimidated by him because he's yeah. so famous and such a champion. But it was exactly the kind of work that really resonated with me because 
all my life I'd had a real kind of empathy, not sympathy, because I come from a really, you know, lovely, loving family, privileged, not wealthy, but definitely secure family background, but a lot of empathy for young people who, through no fault of their own, were kind of starting life behind the eight ball. And Rich did a lot of that kind of work, working with young people from all walks of life, bringing them together, running really kind of inspiring programs, got young people talking and reflecting and engaging and connecting with young people who are different from themselves, but understanding that behind everything, everybody is a person who's looking for a meaningful, loving, connected life and able to explore what was going on for those young people in their lives that might need some support or some connection that would allow them to get past some of the challenges. And so I took that job and it really shifted my life in a completely different direction. That's interesting. So you went from corporates, well, private sector work for 12 years and then you went over and went to reach and took the job on. And so is that – so back to the – just the the selflessness of your personality and the the always – looking for caring about others and, and wanting to help other people. Was that something that was brought through your parents and the way you were brought up? I mean, or is that something that has always been a part of you, just wanting to help people? Like, where does that come from? Yeah, the word selflessness doesn't really resonate with me because I don't see it as selfless. Yeah. I get a lot out of doing this kind of work and yes. it's very rewarding. There's a lot of the intangible income that you get from working in the social sector and seeing people's lives change and shift and knowing that you had you know, a hand in that in some way. But I think in those years I was in the corporate sector, I didn't do a lot. I, I had that thinking, but I really didn't act on it. It was more when I moved into the social sector. But I did, I think there's two things I got from my parents in particular. From my dad, I got a real sense of integrity yeah. and, and sort of work ethic and that kind of thing. And from my mum, she is has always been involved in community and fundraising and making life better for the local community. And when I was young, I, I got a bit sort of, oh God, I'm so sick of, you know, selling tickets for raffles for you and things like that. But now as an older person, I have a much much greater appreciation for just how passionate she was about improving the community and I'm really glad that I had that role model. Yeah. Yeah. Such a great skill, isn't it? And it's at the time, you, you're right, you're thinking, man, do I have to go to another fundraiser or do I have to sell these things? But at the end of the day, um, when you get old enough, you can sort of see that, oh, hang on, that was actually helping me, help groom me to become the person I am and, and have some really good traits as a result of that. Absolutely. So then you so you went to Reach. How long were you with Reach for? I was at Reach for five years and I kind of went by in a flash in a way. And But during that time, it was sort of a, a real golden age for Reach. Quadrupled in size. We quadrupled in funding. Wow. We built a huge team of young leaders, the crew who delivered all the programs. And, and that was where I got my first real sort of understanding of co-design and youth participation and the gym had been always been very sort of strong on having the young people themselves design or co-design the programs and co-deliver them because he really understood how quickly young people's lives shift and the importance of staying relevant and staying engaging and also staying staying away from stigma. So the programs were all never never sort of advertised as youth services or anything like that. It was always come along, have a great time, meet young pe- other young people, and 
incidentally, quietly while you're here, if we note that you've got any kind, if you're sort of exhibiting signs of any mental health issues or we are hearing about violence in your home because of what's going on, what you're saying in the programs or any kind of other indication, we have psych, social workers, youth workers here who can quietly just pull you aside and have a conversation with you and if need be, refer you into more clinical services or, or more acute services. What, what Around what years roughly are we talking here with REACH? What? So I was there from 2003 to 2008. Okay. And so that, they're already establishing programs with co-design, co-delivery as well back then? Yes, but it was wow. almost unheard of. I think yeah, it was really groundbreaking. That been, yeah, yeah, that would have been quite the leader at the time. Yes, absolutely. And, and what we did was we brought it into the organisation as well. So we had a, a set of administrative staff who kind of planned the logistical side of all the programs and the finance and the HR and event you know, running events to raise money and that kind of thing. And what we what one of the things that I did to actually I did originally to build a stronger bond between the crew and the staff. But uh-huh. what and I created jobs within the organization for young people from, from the crew to work part-time in the office. And it created this amazing um, connection between the staff and the crew. And I also said all the staff had to go on at least one camp a year yep. and, and go and watch one of three programs, I think the rule was. And it created this really strong connection which then actually really facilitated the co-design because there was a level of trust and understanding of the different roles in the organisation and it was very powerful to see these young people not just having creative ideas because they were really incredibly creative and and amazing at at developing these experiences that young people would just be blown away by and come back for time after time but also understanding the importance of doing that in a really safe way making sure that there were the right support staff there and and safety net you know safety net program with our social workers and psychologists so it was a very integrated program and I've taken that understanding of what young people can achieve if you give them the space and the opportunity and the resources into every job I've done since. Yeah, wow. So that so that really sparked your passion for getting out there and, and following that intuition you had about wanting to be in that service sector. Tell us about where you went from there. So after four, four and a half years at REACH, I knew it was time for me to go and do something different. I had a moment one day when one of the young leaders, one of the crew came to me with this amazing new idea, which they did all the time. And my first thought was, oh my God, that's more work for me. And I thought, (laughs) oh my God, okay, I need to move on. And it's time to, I'm, I'm done here in terms of energy and it's time for me to make room for somebody else and go on and do something different and new. But what to do after working in an organisation like that, in a space like that. And I was doing a leadership program at the time, the Williamson Community Leadership Program, which is a year-long program for emerging leaders in Victoria. And Christine Nixon, who was the Chief of Police at the time, came and spoke to our group as one on one of the days. And she talked about this master's program that she'd done at Harvard University at the Kennedy School. And I remember sitting there thinking, that's it, that's what I need to do next because the Kennedy School is the School of Public Service and the people who go and study there are people from the social sector, from government, from politics, from military, anyone who, who I, I used to call it the, the graduate school of do-gooders in, at Harvard. And so I, I applied for that and got in and went and did that for a year, which was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. 
and met so many people from around the world wow. all working in the social sector in different ways. I had an astronaut in my class. I had a wow. the guy who did the spacewalk and fixed Hubble. I had the head of communications for UNICEF. I had the parliamentary liaison for the That's World incredible. Bank for Africa. Yeah, it's great, amazing experience. What was that called, the Kennedy? It was the Harvard Kennedy School. Yeah, um, it's sounds a, amazing. It's a mid-career master's program. So you go for a year and you're studying with people who've already got pretty decent work experience yeah. in different ways. And, uh, yeah, that was amazing. And I actually saw Christine Nixon at a conference a few years later in London. I ran up to her and I said, you changed my life. And she said, <laughs> she was a bit taken aback. <laughs> she had no idea who I was. And I said, oh, no, no, you... Not in a bad way. Um, uh, you have to understand that I went and did this program after I heard you speak about it and it, it really was amazing. And it lifted my kind of thinking to a whole new level around the social sector, around not-for-profits, around making a difference in a way that's really about systemic change. And I'd, I'd always thought in a systems way, but I'd never had the language for it. And, it, and looking at, you know, how do you actually look at the outcomes and the the impact of the work you're doing, not just the outputs. So all of that kind of um, work that I, I'd sort of picked up organically, but I had never studied any of it. And so I did a Master's of Public Administration. It was amazing. Wow, that sounds – what an incredible experience. It was. Wow, okay. So then – and then where did you go? So then I <laughs> – I went and looked after my brother's kids for a few weeks. I was the most well-educated nanny he'd ever had, I think. But really what I was looking for was a job where I could put everything I'd learned in, the, in, in my original undergraduate business degree yes. in the private sector, working in the not-for-profit sector, but then also this master's that I'd done. And I came back to Australia and I did some consulting for a while. So I worked at Teach for Australia for about seven months, which was just starting up in Australia and helped them kind of get set up and through some of the teething issues they were having. I did a few months at the Foundation for Young Australians. And then one of my Harvard classmates who was running for political office in Madagascar asked me to go over there and help him for a few months with his oh, wow. campaign. I think he thought I knew a lot more about politics than I did, but I, you know, you don't turn down that kind of request. So I went off to Madagascar for, for a few months, which was an amazing experience because that was post-coup. Yeah. So the, the country was in a very interesting situation so is it, is it beautiful oh it's amazing yeah and it's it they they are just such lovely people who are living the most challenging of circumstances because there's this sort of political elite that has taken a lot of the wealth of the country and so a lot of the people are living in dire poverty and then they've got climate change impact now as well and very very resource rich country but again, being taken by yeah. only a few. So it was sort of heartbreaking at the same time as it was fascinating. And then I, I, a friend of mine, actually another one of my Harvard classmates, sent me a job saying, this looks like you. And I opened it up and it was pretty much my dream job. It was to be the head of youth affairs for the Commonwealth of Nations, working in London across 53 countries. Yeah, so tell us about that role because you, you, you mentioned you spent six years there based out of London what did that entail? A lot of travel, yeah. <laughs> a lot of travel to developing countries. The, the work is a lot of it's focused on policy development and, and working with governments to actually set up systems that can support their young people to be successful. So whether that's about education or skills or mental health or in, in a lot of countries, physical health as well. A lot of countries, the young people were very keen to play a role in things like climate change, climate action, in politics generally and in mobilising young people's voices 
to government because in, in the Commonwealth countries, the majority of them are developing countries and the youth population is actually very a very high proportion of the population and yet in a lot of those countries, the young people don't really have a voice. So again, yeah. that was another sort of st- step for me in terms of youth participation and seeing some of these amazing young people who were really stepping up one great example in Gaia, which is in it's on the north of South America and the Caribbean, and the, the young people there, the national youth group there, had created this program called Vote Like a Boss, and they got the the, the politics there had always been a bit challenging, shall we say. And they got the Electoral Commission to fund them to go around the country and run education programs for young people in schools, not to tell them how to vote, but to teach them how to become an informed voter and make sure they registered to vote and that they voted. And it was incredibly uh, powerful and an incredibly successful program. And that was all youth-led. So... See, that is incredible. Yeah, and so so you sort of see those kind of things going on and part of it's about, well, sharing that information so other countries, young people in other countries can pick up on that idea and run with it as well. Was, that what about, was it about that modelling? Was it about – because, I mean, you had developing and developed nations obviously in that Commonwealth. Was it about – it's not so much about applying what's in working already in one with the other because you couldn't do that, right, because they're all at different stages. You'd have to – see what they want, where they want to go with it and, and really get them to drive that? Is that how it worked? Very much. And, and a lot of it was actually about connecting and con- sort of convening groups together to connect with each other so that they could share what they'd been doing and the successes they'd had and others could see and pick up on what was useful to them. So it wasn't always us identifying what was good or bad. And, and the other thing is that you have to put away immediately assumptions that a developed country is doing something better than a developing country in that context because Mm. most of the really strong youth participation I saw was actually in developing countries because there's more need for a start because there's fewer systems to support people. There's more space as well, again, because there are fewer systems to kind of lock people into silos and you get these really bright young people and, as I said, bigger populations as well who are very passionate. So part of what we did also was connecting young people up right across the Commonwealth who were working on topical, on thematic issues as well. Mm-hmm. So we set up a national youth council, sorry, a Commonwealth Youth Council that connected up national youth councils across the, the countries, but also we set up a, a Commonwealth Youth I can't remember the names of them now, Commonwealth Youth Council on climate change, one on health, one on democracy and human rights. Okay, so they had different yeah. focuses. Yeah. Is it – I mean, that would have been really interesting. Did you ever have any trouble with getting buy-in or from the – were they all pretty progressive and wanting to adopt these uh, programs and help the youth out and create pathways for them? Not always, no. We, okay. we, we worked with governments primarily yeah. and because we were an international or intergovernmental organisation, mm-hmm. the Commonwealth. So, And some countries were incredibly passionate and put a lot of money into their youth programs and had very progressive youth policies. Others were quite conservative and reluctant to change. And it depended quite a lot on the government. It quite depended a lot also on who was the youth minister. And you see that in Australia too. If it's a youth minister who's sort of seen as an up-and-coming talent in the party, they will have a lot more access to power and can actually effect change for young people more effectively than a minister who doesn't have that kind of positioning. In some countries, there was also the risk that the youth minister was really just using their engagement with the Commonwealth as part of their political positioning and we had to be very careful of that as well. That would have been a great experience though. I mean, you would have seen some amazing communities and the ability to help 
a lot of different countries develop that for the youth. Yes, it was it was really uh, humbling in a way to see how much was being done on the smell of an oily rag, how much passion and talent young people were bringing to the work they were doing themselves. And, you know, some of these countries, I went to Sierra Leone just after they'd had um, Ebola and the country was trying to recover from that. And think, so, so, you know, you were seeing countries that were dealing with democratic change or climate-related change or real issues and at the same time looking at, well, how do we involve the young people in in addressing that? And that's actually something I've really taken into the job I've got now because I learned a lot about being very careful about the sort of know-it-all white person who was arriving in a country yeah. that was predominantly black, in Africa particularly, in Asia very much also, you know, really sophisticated systems of, of governance that don't get credited by develop, developed countries quite often. And so I learned a lot about sitting and listening and understanding how things were done before I tried to make any change. And then if there was change, it was about, well, how do you engage the people who actually have the power to make the change mm. and help them influence what needs to happen? And so, you know, actually seeing young people, for example, in Sierra Leone, the National Student Union had played a huge role in contact tracing and education around Ebola and you know, I saw that. And so recently in Victoria, where we've had dreadful bushfires, we ran a big project with Bushfire Recovery Victoria, talking to young people about their experience of the fires, but also what they saw uh, in terms of rebuilding and recovery and the contribution they wanted to make and that they could make. And it was, a, to me, it was a very similar kind of thing, not seeing young people as victim survivors of these terrible disasters that, frankly, we're going to see more and more of going forward, yeah. um, but seeing how can they actually play a really instrumental role because they are a significant part of the communities that are affected. Mm. And it's actually very good for their mental health to be making a contribution and not just be seen as a victim survivor as well. What an incredible opportunity to bring those learnings into the job that you're doing now. So let's talk about that and your role with the Youth Affairs Council Victoria. Tell us what the role is, I know you're CEO, but tell us what the role involves and, and what your focuses are there. So YACVIC, the Youth Affairs Council of Victoria, is the peak body for the youth sector and young people in Victoria. So we have a sort of multifaceted role Part of it's about working with the government to we're, – we're independent not-for-profit, but we are government-funded predominantly. And we work very closely with the government in a sort of trusted advisor relationship to improve policies for young people. And that means being involved in making submissions to a lot of inquiries and royal commissions and things, but also being identifying what is going on for young people, what's coming over the horizon that the government needs to be thinking about. Uh, and when COVID hit – in the early days, most of the discussion was in the you know, everywhere was about how it was affecting older people and and the, the health risks. But what we were focusing on was well, what is this doing to young people? Yeah. Their schools being disrupted, they're 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 losing their jobs disproportionately because they are the ones in casual jobs in hospitality, in retail, in tourism, and Why affecting their mental health. Yeah. They're socially isolated. Sexual and reproductive health clinics shut down for a while. Sport. Organised sports, sports stopped. Yeah. So all of these things were happening that were affecting young people's lives but not a lot of notice was being taken on that. So in those early months we did a lot of advocacy with state and federal government around 
look what's happening to young people. You need to be putting stuff in place that is going to support young people through all of this. The, the, in Victoria also there's huge mental health reforms happening now because of the Royal Commission. Yes. And so at, at Yakvik we put in a big submission that was co-designed and co-consulted by young people from rural and regional areas with lived experience of mental health issues. And so our submission was focused on what mental health services are like for young people in rural and regional areas. And we like to think that as a result of that, there was a big focus in the Commission's uh, report and recommendations that around rural and regional areas, which was, was really good to see. And we also ran roundtables where the commissioners could meet with young people and hear about their experiences directly as part of that process as well. And now the report's come out, we're working with the government and various others to make sure that all of the recommendations as they're implemented, yeah. they're considering what young people need in their unique needs of young people in those contexts. Is that the first time um, that that's happened, having that involvement with the youth and having that I mean, well, Yakvix existed for 60 years, so there's been a, a lot of Cons policy work. And, I mean, I think we've, we've put a really big focus on it and because of that, you know, we're being asked more and more to be yeah. sitting – in, in, in advisory groups in not just around mental health but around other things like the government's committed to changing, uh, to decriminalising um, drunk, public drunkenness and turning it into a health issue. And so we were involved in the consultations around that in terms of, well, if they're not being put in police custody, what needs to happen to yeah. people who are publicly drunk? And again, look, talking talking in those contexts about, well, what do young people specifically need in that context? So that's the policy work. And then we do a lot of work around youth participation mm -hmm. and supporting young people to have a voice, whether it's in those kind of environments. I was just talking about policy consultations and things, but also in with the media uh, and other spaces. And the other side of that coin, actually training organisations to support young people and, and welcome young people in and show them the respect and have them sitting at the table when decisions are being made about their lives. Because you can't just launch young people into those environments without training yeah. the people who are, who are running them as well. And then we do a lot of connecting of the sector. So building connections for information sharing, for collaboration uh, and training and, and professional development as well. And across all of that, like we work for all young people in Victoria, but we have a specific focus on young people who face marginalisation in some way. So we auspice the Koori Youth Council, we have a youth disability advocacy service as part of our organisation, which we ha are just about to move to be a separate legal entity, which is wow. exciting. We also have a rural team that focuses on rural and regional young people and their specific needs. We run the program for the government, which is Healthy Equal Youth, focused on LGBTIQA plus young people, which is a grants program and a coalition of organisations, the Hay Partners, who all focus on mental health of LGBTIQA plus young people. Yeah, and then we partner with the Centre for Multicultural Youth for called young people. So we, we really wow. try to make sure that, that as we're looking at the needs of all young people, we are really making sure that those who quite often are excluded because or, or discriminated against are being prioritised. Yeah, no, that's important. And, and you, I mean, it certainly sounds like there's a lot going on. Yes, there is. Catherine, do you just want to tell us a little bit about some of the partnerships that Yakvik are involved in and have using collaboration and, and are working with? Yeah, and our partners uh, and our member organisations are so important. Actually, our individual members as well. I've talked quite a bit about the work Yakvik does, but all of that's been done in partnership and in collaboration with the universities in Victoria. So Victoria University, RMIT University, ACU. I sit on a panel at 
Monash as well. And then the organisations in the sector, and some of them are really big organisations like YSAS and White Lion and, you know, the, the organisation Headspace, yep. Origin, we partner with Origin around mental health, really fantastic partnership. And then also to really small organisations and a lot of local government youth services actually, and they're an incredibly important part of the youth sector in Victoria because quite often they are the first port of call for young people who are looking for some kind of support or engagement or connection in their communities. So we could never do all the work we've done without all of those partnerships. Yeah. How long have you been involved with the ACFIC for now? Nearly three years. Three years. And and what's been the most initiative or that you've been a part of or has there been any major highlights that you particularly want to want to uh, mention that have been something you're most proud of? Oh, there's been a, a lot. And I think at this point I have to acknowledge the Yakvik team who are an amazing group of people mm-hmm. and all of our members because we work very collectively and collaboratively yeah. across the sector. So I mentioned the bushfire work we've done. Yeah. That's been a highlight. And we actually just got one of the summer bushfire grants from the federal government. So we'll be able to continue work in that space, which is brilliant. We also, and the, and the Mental Health Royal Commission work all of I mean, it's just a huge piece of work that's going on and on, which we're very proud of and very involved in. I think one other piece that we started, oh, sorry, two other things. What we, we've recently, we got a grant last year as part of the COVID recovery in Victoria to hire a group of young facilitators and we've trained them to be part of co-design and co-delivery of all of our consultations and our surveys or research reports or events we're running, anything. And we, we're able to kind of lend them to other organisations sometimes. And, and it means that we have a much bigger youth kind of participation aspect to all our work. So that's been fantastic as well. And another piece that we're doing at the moment, which is incredibly important, is looking at how do we get the rest of the world so not the youth sector who already knows this, but the rest of the world to understand the value of youth work and understand what youth work is for a start and that many youth workers are four-year four degree qualified, have really extensive knowledge of adolescent development and engagement techniques. It's not just people who kind of wander down to the park and start a you know, start-up game of basketball with the local yeah. kids or something. And really, really looking at the, the environments that youth workers operate in, whether it's community organisations, schools, sports clubs, all kinds of spaces you find youth workers in. They don't quite often don't identify as youth workers. They'll identify as a disability worker or a homelessness worker, but they are youth workers because they are working with young people in a very skilled way. And so how do we get people to understand that profession Mm. and the value of it and the role it plays in early intervention and prevention uh, work? So... And, and, you know, link to that, obviously, encourage government and philanthropy to invest upstream in youth workers in these different environments. So to help young people have a sense of connection and setting goals and achieving and things in their life at the same time as helping them deal with any issues that they've got going on, whether it's a mental health issue or a family violence issue or a drug and alcohol issue or school engagement, so many different ways. And they're always interlinked. And so the way youth workers work in a very holistic way, putting young people at the centre of the experience, working alongside them and with them and recognising and respecting the fact that the young person is the expert in their own life can add so much to all of these different sectors that are all kind of operating separately and mental health is a perfect example of that yet youth workers play such an important role in supporting young people so that they don't need clinical services or they they can be a pathway to a trusted referral 
to a clinical service. And so we've been doing a whole lot of work on that. We're now working with Deloitte to make wow. the economic case for that. Because you imagine, you think about it, if someone, a young person who's being supported early on and therefore not ending up in acute services, whether that's mental health or homelessness or youth justice or any of the others, it's economically advantageous too. Exactly, as well as the social outcomes from it. So we're doing that piece of work at the moment. That's incredible. Where do you think we're at with regards to early intervention and prevention with our youth? Do you think we have a way to go in trying to do a better job at getting that awareness out there and, and trying to trying to identify those touch points to improve the opportunities we have to to identify this at an earlier stage and, and support that so that we can keep them out of those systems and, and so they do get that help and support earlier? I think that there needs to be more recognition of the role that youth workers, sports yeah. coaches, people like that can play in that space and actually resource them to do it. And it's, you know, so many of these, op- these programs operate with almost no resources and yet the impact they have can be enormous. So I think recognising that more and I mean, in, in the justice space it's called justice reinvestment and it's about, you know, putting the money in earlier on and, but I think it's relevant in every space. I mean, you would never look at cancer and say, well, let's just put more money into treating people with cancer. You're always going to yeah. be putting money into the research uh, and, and the health promotion to prevent people getting cancer in the first place. So we need to be doing that more with young people and the issues that they face and involving young people themselves in those processes. And there are some fantastic examples of that happening now where organisations have got peer workers involved organizations like live for youth live for life where they actually train young people in schools to support their peers and build their knowledge of mental health resources in the community so you know that that side of things is is incredible the other thing i would say is a recognition of the role that youth workers and that prevention early intervention work particularly in a, a local place based way is incredibly important because in rural and regional areas there are fewer services to start with and quite often they're, you know, the next town over or a couple of towns over and it's an hour or two to get there if you've got access to a car, if you're happy to tell the person who can drive you there why you want to go. So, you know, young people who are looking for confidentiality, relying on public transport, even the services that are considered close to them are quite often not accessible. Yeah. Uh, or... or Sometimes you see also young people, disabled young people or LGBTIQA plus young people who aren't willing to access those services because they don't feel safe there, they don't feel seen for who they are and therefore actually, and quite often it's the local youth worker who can provide that early support and then actually refer them or talk to a service provider with or on behalf of the young person to make sure that they're going to get respected and and treated and looked after in the way that they need to be. Catherine, you mentioned before about COVID and the impact on the youth. If we look at, I mean, Victoria, possibly the most locked down, well, Melbourne anyway, the most locked down city in the world, possibly. I don't know the the stats of where that's ended up now. But I mean, the impact that's that's had on the youth, tell us how how you've seen that with Yakvik and, and as a result of that, what's happening. For some young people, it's actually been great. You know, there are some young people who really struggle with the school environment and online learning has been very, very good for them. And, and some you know, young people with disability, it's actually levelled the playing field. So it, it's been good in that way as well. So I think we shouldn't 
consider COVID has been all bad, but definitely the lockdown has affected young people's mental health and their social connections and actually their ability to forge social connections is what we're seeing a bit more now as well. And it's going to have a very long tail. So, you know, we have full expectation that there will be continued increasing demand on mental health services, probably on physical health services as well. A lot of young people, a lot of people generally putting off going and getting checked up for health issues because yeah. they didn't want to go into health environments while COVID was around or, or, you know. So I think that that side of things, we still have a lot to see panning out. And even with jobs and employment, you know, the employment, un- the unemployment rate is right down. But what that hides is the insecure employment, the underemployment that sits behind that. Yeah. And for a lot of young people, that's their situation. So as we're looking at sustained low rates of unemployment, we need to be making sure that young people are actually being able to access meaningful jobs that will have pathways to careers and secure jobs that will allow them to actually find a home that they can live in and afford and that they are not kind of patching their life together, which is is what a lot of young people have, have had to see. And then in the mental health space, you know, there's so much going on in that space. So one of the big things that we're seeing coming out at the moment is the prevalence of eating disorders. And that, I mean, it makes sense if you think about it because eating disorders are, are predominantly about control. And in a period where there's been so much uncertainty mm. uh, for everybody, but particularly young people, that having, you know, control in one way has been very important for them. And that's manifested into eating disorders. I, I have been hearing anecdotally, but I haven't seen any research on this yet also, as we are now starting to finally open up in Victoria. And as you say, we've effectively been locked down for two years because every yeah. time it started to open up, we've got locked down again. And most work environments are still predominantly work from home. Mm. A lot of you know school programs and things haven't started up again because the risk was that they would just be shut down again. Yeah. So what we're seeing, what I'm, what I'm hearing anecdotally is that young people, like the rest of us probably, are really struggling to kind of go out and make those social connections after a couple of years at home. And, you know, for for people who are older who have more established friendship groups or, you know, probably a bit more tired and aren't ready to go out partying every weekend anyway, it's probably not as much of an issue. But for young people in that sort of 55 to 25-year-old age group where their whole physiology is actually urging them to go out and forge new networks and new relationships because that's part of becoming independent from their families. Not, you know, they haven't been able to do that for two years and they potentially have lost the skills to a certain extent or lost the confidence to do that. So I think actually it's going to be very interesting to see whether there might be a need for sort of facilitated social engagement to bring young people back into that space. Not every young person, some of them are out there parting their heads off and, and, you know, getting involved in everything again, but there are going to be some for whom that is a very anxiety inducing situation. Catherine, tell me, as you look across other states and how they're rolling out youth programs, I mean, where does Victoria sit? Is is it sort of leading the way with what they're doing? Are you aware of what's going on in the other states? Are collaborating with them? Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so every state has a pick body except Northern Territory. And for anyone who's listening to this from the Northern Territory, I would 100% encourage you to, to help get a, a youth pick body set up there. But I And I actually meet with my counterparts from the other states every week. Oh, wow. During COVID, we started meeting twice a week just to share information and 
because we were all nobody was an expert during COVID. Yeah. We were all learning and and a bit of a peer support mechanism as well. So we do trade information a lot on what's going on in different states, and I think every state has their strength in some way. But I would say that that having a very progressive government in Victoria has actually helped a lot with real sort of action on things like mental health reform, but also things like in Victoria. The government made wage, what do you call it, wage stealing? No, that's not the word, wage theft, illegal. And that's a huge game changer for young people because yeah. it stops companies from being able to rip off young workers. And it's, you know, that's not anything that's seen as a sort of social thing for young people. That is about the economy, mm. but it's a game changer for young people. There are new sort of regulations being brought in around rental responsibilities. You know, there, there are definitely things happening. There's a lot. There's a lot that needs to be done still and, yeah. you know, we, we're working with the government constantly on what we can see can make things better. But a progressive government does help, particularly when it's issues that are sort of seen as a bit more controversial potentially. Okay. Mm. As you look to the future, what are you seeing that's going to be some uh, – I know we still we haven't got the repercussions yet of uh, COVID and the impact that that's having on the youth completely and we'll still that'll still play out over the next couple of years, no mm. doubt. But – as we look to the future, what are some key challenges that you, you think will be important things to be looking at and keeping an eye on? Well, I think that youth participation is going to be incredibly important going forward and there's more and more take-up of that now, which is great. And actually the Victorian government is about to launch a new youth strategy which focuses on that and getting government departments and ministers to look at, well, as you're introducing policies and programs, how are these going to affect young people, which is great. And we want to see that everywhere, you know, for companies that that employ a lot of young people, are they bringing young people into the co-design of their policies and procedures and systems and programs and things? Are they having young people co-delivering? Are they, when they have, there are governance bodies involved, are there young people sitting on those governance bodies? When it's being evaluated, evaluated, are you involving young people in that evaluation? So that's going to be very big. Another thing that doesn't get nearly enough attention but should is intersectionality. So quite often the service system is focused on, oh, you're a disabled person or you're a homeless person or you're a person in youth justice or you're a person with a mental health issue. But in actual fact, you have, you know, disabled people in the youth justice system with a mental health issue if they're released will end up homeless. And the recognition, and particularly if on top of that it's it's an Aboriginal person or a person of colour, you know, the intersectionality aspects of that are so incredibly important and having a service system that recognises that and can support that is incredibly important. And so I would love to see more focus on scholarships and support for people from marginalised communities to study youth work, social work, psychology, all the different kind of um, professions that, that provide support for vulnerable people, vulnerable and marginalised people, so that as people go to services, they can see themselves in the organisation. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. Mm. And, and tell us around, I mean, as the future holds for you, I mean, it's, it's exciting with what you're up to, plenty of new things coming up and plenty of drive happening. You're clearly very passionate about what you do, but tell us what personally have you got some major goals or, or the things that you're focusing on right now that are really the key. So I've probably mentioned some of them already. The Youth Work Matters project is a really important one for us. Uh, and we, you know, we've got an election, a federal election in a few weeks probably, yeah. and a state election in November. And okay. so, so this year is provides a lot of opportunities to be talking about that 
as an issue. I'm very passionate about connecting our sector up and working really collectively because I think the youth sector is a very disparate space because we work in so many different environments and on so many different topics. And yet it, at the end of the day, it's young people and their wellbeing and their success that we're looking at. So how do we work collectively as we're talking about what young people need? It, it is a very inclusive, collaborative sector, I think, because at the end of the day, we're all about young people's wellbeing. But sometimes and a lot, I think a lot of it comes down to lack of resources. People have their head down doing and not a lot of time to put their head up and say, let's work together, let's advocate together. And I want to see more of that going forward. Do you, do you think much about the other 53 countries or 52 countries? I mean, do you ever think about, oh, I wonder what they're up to now? Or do you, I mean, do you check in? Is there a, do you ever sit there and wonder about what's going on over there with youth development over in other countries? Yeah, I do. I definitely follow the careers of different staff who, okay. and I created the Young Professionals Program when I was at the Commonwealth. So a lot of those young people have now gone on to work in different spheres. So oh, social good. media is a wonderful thing to keep yeah. track of people when you've worked internationally. And some of my uh, my team from those days is still working at the Commonwealth. So oh, I, wow. I'm in touch with them occasionally to hear what they're up to. And actually for this Youth Work Matters project, I was in contact with them to see if they had any evaluations or research that we could feed into that process. And oh, they're very keen to see the results of it because potentially it's globally applicable if yeah. we can if we can make that case so yeah we do I do definitely do stay in contact with them oh that's great and Catherine if people want to get in touch with you how would they best be able to do that so contact the contact Yakvik Youth Affairs Council yep. of Victoria so my Google Yakvik and yeah if you want to do email address or yeah so to. my email address is k-e-l-l-i-s at yakvik.org.au or they can go through the info at yakvic.org.au. But I would suggest people look at our website first because there's a yep. lot of information on there about all the different things that we're working on. Well, you're certainly doing a lot and uh, there's a lot in the pipeline. And, I mean, Yakvic certainly, uh, I mean, it's just amazing the broad uh, the broad services, the broad things that they're they're doing at the moment for the youth for the youth in the in Victoria. It's exciting to hear about all the programs that are coming up and what's happening. It's been really insightful getting your background and seeing how you've uh, ended up in the role that you're in. And it's, I mean. Would you look back on it? I mean, are you, is it, are you impressed with it? I mean, you look back and think, wow, geez, it's gone quick. Do you think it's yeah. just amazing how you've ended up where you are? But it's all happened for a reason, no doubt. Yeah, I think I've never been one to plan sort of 10 years out yeah. or anything because I think that that means that you don't necessarily notice opportunities that are yes. coming along the way. So for me, it's always been about learning and growing and seeing opportunities to do that. And, and, and I think being very curious about the world generally helps. I did the strength survey some years back and my two top strengths that came out of it were curiosity about the world and social justice. Uh, so I kind of feel like I've ended up in the right space. Yeah, yeah. yeah perfect fit. Yeah, yeah. Well, Catherine, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate you sharing your story and your journey with our listeners and it's been fun and thanks very much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.